I've said this before. Um, here. That there are times where the songs just come together. Um, and I'm not talking about them singing, because they do a great job. I'm talking about how the songs that have been picked come really close together with the central theme of the message that I believe God has prepared for us today. We are journeying through the seven churches of the book of Revelations, chapters 2 and 3. And today we're going to look at the second church, uh, the church of Smyrna. And I understand that... uh, you know, sometimes when we look at these things, especially when it comes to a book like Revelation, there are lots of background information that are missed. And to be honest with you, 30 to 40 minutes isn't enough time to cover everything. And there are many, and after last week's sermon, slash Bible study, because I think that we need to get into the Word. I kept going back, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I could have said this, I could have said that. Could have done this, could have done that. But there isn't enough time. So I pray that as we go through this, I pray that you will glean what is important to you, what, 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 what is applicable to you. And let me be honest, I think everything's applicable to all of us. And the reality of it is, is that. But if, it doesn't, if you think it doesn't apply to you, well, God bless you. Um, but this morning, I want to pick up where we left off in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open it up there. We're going to spend a few moments. We're going to go through other texts in the Bible this morning as well. But I would like, before we actually begin to get into it, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray one more time. Father God, what a wonderful privilege you've given us to come and to open your word together. And the the privilege that we have to sit together to learn, to hear, to discuss. Seems so fitting, giving the context of today's message. So I pray, Father, that you will be with us, continue to be with us through your Spirit. Lead us in our thoughts, in our minds, in in the words that are spoken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do not have a Bible, you may find a Bible underneath your chair. Uh, uh, It is there for you to use. You know, I had the privilege of growing up in a little town called South Lancaster, Massachusetts. If you have never been to South Lancaster, Massachusetts, if you drive through it and you blink, you've gone past it. Um. The town was established in the late 1700s. And it has not changed much since then. Because of the local ordinances and laws, it's a dry town. 
Uh, there are no major food chains established within the towns or, or city limits because they wanted to keep it as a rural community. And man, when I was growing up, I used to hate being there because there was nothing there. It was just lots of farmlands, lots of houses, and that was it. If you wanted to Taco Bell, you had to drive half an hour. If you wanted to go to a mall, you had to drive 20 minutes. If you wanted to go to a big city, you had to drive at least a half hour to 45 minutes. So we grew up in a place where it wasn't very uh, developed. Let's put it that way. And having experienced that, each time that my wife and I have, have moved to a different location because of, of my ministry calling, I've always been curious of what the place looks like. So when we, I left Lancaster in ministry and I went to Chicago, that was a huge difference. The Windy City, as it's called, is not because there's a constant wind there, but because of the politics. But it was very, and so I remember my wife commenting to me, this place looks cool. It's modern. I mean, she grew up in a city in, in, in Brazil. She grew up in a large city. And so going to a large city, to Lancaster, it was a shock. It was a cultural shock at that as well. And then living, living in that small town and then moving to the city it was like oh i'm home and to me i was like this is weird but i always wonder what the place looked like before it was developed and so we left there we went to burleson uh, we went to andrews university and that was also in the middle of nowhere um it's even smaller than lancaster believe believe it or not uh, but from there, we moved to Texas, to a, a little town called Burleson, Texas, sitting 13 miles south of Fort Worth. But we flew into you know, Fort Worth DFW airport services, both Dallas and Fort Worth, two major cities in, in the great big old state of Texas. But we lived in this little town, and, and it, it was really close to our Adventist University there, Southwestern. And Southwestern itself was a small town. Can you see a theme of where Adventists like to establish their uh, institutions, per se? And so when they, we lived there you know, for a couple of years in the state of Texas, and then we moved back to Massachusetts, and I moved to a, a, a city, I should say, my churches were around the, the Springfield area. And for those of you that like trivia, Springfield is the birthplace of volleyball. Excuse me, basketball. Not where Homer Simpson lives. My, my friends at, at, at school would say, hey, Art, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm pastoring a church in Springfield. Hey, is Bart Simpson your neighbor? I'm like, yeah, very funny. No. Uh, and in Holyoke, which is the town next over, is also the birthplace of volleyball. So we have two Hall of Fames for these sports right next to each other. And we lived in a little town called Ludlow, Massachusetts. And there was nothing there. And then 
I got the opportunity to interview with you guys, now my church, and uh, the first thing that crossed my mind is, what's Naples like? And I was, and I was remembering calling and, and talking to Danielle and, and Mary and, and, and the ministers, like, tell me about Naples, what it's like. Oh, no, we got everything. Okay, what does that mean? Is you got everything, what, 15 minutes drive, 20 minutes away, different town, what it's like. And so when, we, when I arrived in Naples, when we arrived for the very first time, we started to drive around and we're like, man, they, they do have a little bit of everything, but it's not like a big city. But my mind kept wondering what this place may have looked like a hundred years ago. Because I know, speaking with those that have lived here for over 30, 40, even 50 years, you've already stated, says this place looks absolutely nothing like it did 20 years ago. So I keep imagining, what does this place look like 100 years ago? 200 years ago? Or before this, you know, the... It was discovered. To me, it fascinates me to see the, the history of a place and, and how it changes. And the church of Smyrna was established 1,000 years before Jesus. In the, in, but it didn't live for very long. It didn't last for very long because it was destroyed 400 years later. But you're thinking, well, pastor, that's 400 years. That's a long time. Well, when you put it into the context of biblical perspectives, 400 years is a very, very short amount of time. I mean, our, our nation, we were barely 500 years old. Very new. When you compare to the old world countries of Europe, it was destroyed in the year 600 B.C., but then later a gentleman by the name of Alexander the Great commissioned that place to be rebuilt. And they say and they, and they estimate that Smyrna housed roughly about anywhere from, two, from 100 to 200,000 people at, at its height, at its peak. It had a Colosseum, it had a library. I mean, think of it, the Colosseum, or I should say the, the, the theater in there, is, it is estimated that it used to sit 20,000 people. It was thriving, it was a port city. It, 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 it had very good connections and, and political ties to Rome. Such were their ties that Smyrna beat out 10 other cities to be able to host a temple to the emperor. So they had two temples. They had the temple of their pagan god, and then they had the temple to the emperor where people were expected to go and pray every single week and pay homage to their, their god. And so they built, so their goddess was the goddess Roma, not the emperor, but that was the goddess. We had Ephesus who had Diana uh, as their goddess in their temple. But here we see that it's a different context. The religious climate was also very tense and heavy. 
because having now two temples, you, you were obligated to go and, and worship not only the, the religion of, of the state, but also you had the, the emperor who was considered a god and, and thus required, required your worship. This didn't sit well with the Jews or the Christians because they only worshipped one God, their, their creator. So having understanding of that historical context, let's look at the church of Smyrna. Revelation chapter 12, excuse me, 2, verses 8 through 11. There you go. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, And I know, in poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Mercy is right. How would you like to be called a synagogue or a church of Satan? We have to look at a couple of things here. The first thing I want to look at, which I don't have a slide for, is the way in which Jesus is introducing himself. Remember I just told you that Smyrna was established roughly around the year 1000 BC and then was later destroyed in the year 600, but commissioned by Alexander the Great to be rebuilt, and this took place around the year 334. So 300 years, it was dead. And at its completion, it became a thriving city. And Jesus is now introducing, because Jesus is the one who is the author of the book of Revelation. It is the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw this, Apocalypse, it's an unveiling. This book talks about how Jesus is revealed. And so Jesus is choosing to reveal himself to the church of Smyrna in a language and in a way that the people are familiar with. I... Here are the things. These things says, says the first and the last. We see this clearly in chapter 1 where Jesus reveals himself as I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. More than once. And now he reiterates that statement by saying I am the first and I am the last. The one who was dead but is now alive. Jesus will never introduce himself to you in a way that you will not comprehend. Let me say that again. Jesus will never introduce himself to you or present his plans to you in a way that you will not be able to understand or identify with because he was dead and now is alive. 
the sheer contrast here for the people is they understood the glorious city in which they lived in, but now it's a person who's using that same idea, that same play on words to introduce himself saying, hey, I was dead, I lived, I died, but I am alive again. And so Jesus takes that and uses to introduce himself. He says, I know your works. If you look at every single one of these churches, if you go back home and you read through chapters 1 through 3, especially chapter 2 and 3, you will find that every single word, every single church, you will find this, this wording, I know your works. That's there in all of them. But I don't know if you, did you catch what's missing in this church? In the very first church, I want to go back. We looked at it last week. He says, he who holds the several stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps. I'm in verse two now. I know your works, your labors, and your patience, that you cannot bear those who, who are evil, and you are tested, and you have tested those who say who are apostles and are not, and have found them liars and have persevered. So he's describing all these works. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you. In, chap, in, verse, in the church of Smyrna, he has something, he has an indictment to them. But in the church of Smyrna, there is no indictment. Keep this in mind. It's important. He has not found anything wrong with his church. So he jumps into, I know your works, your tribulation. Talk about that for a little bit. Persecution for participating or not participating in temple worship, in the emperor worship. That's what it's referring to, the tribulation here. But the word tribulation comes from a, a Greek word that means pressure. Stress. Stress in the format of what they would do, they would use this as torture. So this Greek word that it, where we get the word tribulation from describes the process of torture what would they do they would have they would take the individual lay him on a bed or a platform or something and they would start piling heavy objects on them and ask them to recant or tell the truth and they got to a point that if they said no or if they would not recant they would add more stress pressure and on and on until the point they could no longer breathe. Have you ever felt that pressure in your life? Where things are just mounting up on you and you feel like you can't breathe. This is the image that the church of, of Smyrna, God is saying, listen, I know the pressures that you are going through right now. I know that things are, are piling up. I know this. I know your works. And this pressure, this, this treatment that they were receiving was because they, would not, they did not want to participate in the temple worship. So they were being pressured to do something they couldn't. Now, here's where the synagogue of Satan comes in. I mentioned also that Jews would not honor the emperor. 
And because they would not honor the emperor, they were also being persecuted. However, these Jews were brothers and sisters of these new Christians. The church of Smyrna was most likely founded right after the day of Pentecost. Do you remember that in Acts chapters 2 and 3? And so they, they came and got converted and went back into Smyrna and started a Christian church. But, there, but then there was this bickering, infighting that took place. And so they would, the, the new Christians would go to the synagogues and they would worship in the synagogues. But because they believed in Jesus, there was, a, there was attrition. It didn't, it didn't mesh. And as a result, they were persecuted by their own spiritual relatives. But he didn't stop there. They persecuted the Jews, excuse me, the, the Christians. The Jews persecuted the Christians because the Christians also had what they call fellowshipping. They call the feasts of love, which is the breaking of bread. And so they started to accuse these Christians of sodomy they started accusing these christians of um, cannibalism they started accusing these christians of uh, perversion and so they would rat out the christians to the roman empire to take attention away from themselves and and divert attention to the christians who were becoming increasingly larger by the numbers that's why you have the synagogue of Satan. They professed to claim and to worship God, but reality hated their brother, hated their sister. But there was something there, though, that was interesting. Because of their persecution, because of their condition, that says here, I know your, your works, your tribulation, tribulation and poverty but you are rich oh come come with me to mark chapter 20 chapter 10 verses 17 through 22 here we find the story of the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler comes to jesus asking says lord lord good teacher he's already trying to we had a saying in, uh, in, in school when, 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 a, when a student would try to butter up the teacher. Um, some of those things I can't say here, but one of them was brown noser. So here's this rich young ruler coming up to Jesus, a good teacher, trying to prop him up. And he says, who's good but God? And so they go on, and the story, let me paraphrase the story for the sake of time. He asks, what must I do to be saved? And he says, honor your father, mother, and, 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 and honor, your, honor God. And follow the commandments. And he says, I've been doing this all my life. So he, in his mind, he's thinking, I got this made. I got it down. Everything that the Bible tells me to do, I've done it. And he says, okay, well, then go out and sell all your property. I don't think so. And he walked away. The Bible tells us is that if you read here, verse 
22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, back then, it was also associated that if you had riches, if you were well-to-do, if you were blessed with possessions and property and everything else, you were highly favored by God. Therefore, your salvation was almost guaranteed. You were closer to God than everybody else. This was the perception at this time. And so Jesus flips the script and he says, oh, you, you think you got it made? Sell everything you have. Paraphrasing, paraphrasing other verses in the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself. And he went away sorrowful. He was sad because he had many possessions. The apostles were astonished. That, that's why the Bible says the apostles were astonished because they couldn't believe what he just what he, what he did. Verse 26, check this out. And they went, were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who can be saved then? If these people who have everything, all these blessings from God, that's where this statement is coming from, is because in their mind view, their worldview is that if you have an easier life, if you don't have to struggle, salvation is quite easy then. But that couldn't be furthest from the truth because Jesus continues to go ahead and he moves and he's saying, no, 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 no. It is much easier. It's hard, actually, he says. It's hard. With men, it is impossible, but with God, but for God, all things are possible. See, in their mindset is if I'm poor and I'm struggling and I have debt and I have tribulation and I have all of these things, Salvation is harder for me because I'm dealing with all these things. When you look at your own personal life this morning and your own spiritual walk with God, do you wish that things were easier? Do you wish that God would relieve some of the tension and the stress so you could say to yourself, Oh, it would be so much better. I would, my, my spiritual walk with God would, would be so much stronger if I didn't have all these pressures in this world. That's why Jesus says, for God, all things are possible. Because he later goes on to expand this statement and he says, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, and sisters and mothers, and children and lands, with persecutions. Who wants persecutions? But that's what God promises you. This is what he's promising each and every single one of us. Persecutions to the point that we, we can question if we are on the right track or not. And he continues, and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, Jesus is promising you and I 
eternal life, not an easy temporal life. Okay? Are we tracking? Are we together? That's horrible, isn't it? Let's be honest. Who wants to live with tribulation? No one wants to live in hardship. No one wants to live thinking that, oh man, I got two bucks in my bank account. How am I going to eat tomorrow? And, and you're, you find yourself in that predicament. It could be for any reasons, but if one of those reasons is because I choose to follow God and his principles and I will not compromise myself with said principles, then you are suffering because of Christ. But Jesus said, blessed are you who suffer on my behalf. And this is what he's talking about here. He's offering the, the idea and the concept of eternal life. And that's why in Revelation chapter 2, it says poverty, but you are not. Just because you are counting yourself as having struggles does not mean that you do not have saving faith. In other words, be grateful that you are encountering these things because it puts things into perspective because this world is not what we are meant to live for. But it is the world to come. And Jesus is reminding these individuals of that. Well, pastor, I got plans and aspirations to build my business, to increase my, my, my clientele, to, to thrive. Nothing wrong with that. In its right place. Jesus is reminding us that we, what is essential here is our faith and trust in God. We're going to talk about that here just a little bit. We also saw here the blasphemy of the Jews, the persecution. I'm not going to go back into that. But let's continue with the text. Back in Revelation. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. I don't want to go to jail. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have been to jail before? I haven't. And I don't want to go. But I have visited the jail. My brother-in-law works at a jail as a guard. I don't want, and he tells me these stories that I, I'm like, man, I'm so glad I'm, I'm not there. But here's what is interesting. Do not fear. The book of Revelation talks about this twice, and more particularly in this church. It says, do not fear is the message that they have for them. Do not fear, which is based out of Psalm chapter 46. Please turn your Bibles with me there. Psalm chapter 46. 
Some of you have memorized this already because it is a very comforting psalm. Psalm chapter 46. And it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Do not fear. Jesus' word to the Smyrnians, or to the church of Smyrna was, do not fear. Despite the stress that you're going through, despite the the pressure you are under, do not fear. I asked you again, how many of you are under stress? How many of you are under pressure? And some of you may even be persecuted because you're choosing not to compromise what God has asked you to do. But do not fear. If there's anything that you take away from this morning is this. Do not fear. I'll come back to this in a little bit. Because there's another element to this that we need to look at. When you look at, let me come back. When you look at the do not fear, it's not because everything's going to be all right. It's not because things are going to work out. When it says do not fear, it's because you need to exercise your faith. You, can't, you cannot have peace just by thinking it'll be okay. That will not happen. You need to exercise your faith in order to have peace. How do I know this? Easy. There's a story in the Old Testament about a widow who was encountered by a prophet, the name of Elijah. And God had told Elijah to seek her out. And, and he did. And he found her and asked her for some food. And, and she said, I don't have anything all i have is some oil and some flour i was going to make this into some bread and so my my son and i could eat and then we are going to die because we have no more food but because you asked me i will do so and so she did and she began to pour oil he had and he instructed her to find more vases, containers, wherever it is that she, that she was pouring into because she was poor and the, and the oil would not stop flowing. She, she saved her family and herself because she trusted God's message. These promises are built for us, are given to us, not to fear, because we need to exercise our faith. 
not because things are going to be all right. They will be all right when you exercise your faith. And I'll show you why this in a little bit. In, in, in the book, Prophets and Kings, Ellen White has this statement. It says, no greater test of faith than, that, than this could have been required. The widow had hitherto treated all strangers with kindness and liberality. Now, regardless of the suffering that might result in herself and child, and trusting in, God, in the God of Israel the supply, to supply her every need, she met the supreme test with hospitality by doing according to the sayings of Elijah. Their test of faith was not that it was him who was coming, who showed up at the door and asked for hospitality, but it was in who sent him. This is the test of faith. The test of faith is, are you going to trust the one who asked you to, hey, I need help with Sabbath school. Hey, I need help with here cleaning out the church. Hey, I need help with being involved in the leadership. Hey, I need... It's not the pastor who's asking. If God is putting in your heart that you need to help with something, if you need to minister to somebody, follow that. That is faith. That is working faith. And I'll go even a step further. That is salvific faith because you're not, no longer trusting in the person, but in the one who sent you to do that. That is the test of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, and 1 Peter 1, 7 talk about this. This is, the, this is about Abraham, who was tested by faith, they said. By faith, he walked up that mountain to sacrifice his son. It was his faith. It was exercising that faith on the one who promised him. Take your time or write these down and search these out. But my time is running away, so I need to move further ahead. Revelation 2, 18, going back, says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let me ask you a question. In the year 80, this is after the destruction of, of Jerusalem. The Jews expelled all Christians out of their synagogue. There was a gentleman there by the name of Polycarp that the ancient Christian church has given him the title of the Bishop of Polycarp. If you don't know who he is, he was one of the leaders of the church in Smyrna. And because he would not bow to the emperor and because he would not compromise himself, he was sentenced to death. And story has it that it was the Jews who helped the Romans gather the wood to build the fire for Polycarp, Polycarp to be burned in. So the bishop of Polycarp in the year 155 was sentenced to death and he died as a martyr. The interesting aspect of this is that most often they would tie the individuals to the stake. And, 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 and Polycarp said, you don't need to tie me 
I'll go on my own volition. I'll go on my own accord. And so there he walks over to that pile of wood, gets up on the stand, puts his hands behind his back or behind the pole, willingly becoming a martyr for God. There was no screaming. There was no yelling. There was no blasphemous words to his enemies. It was just self-denial. Because he didn't say anything, they thought that he was dead, and so they stabbed him, as it was customary to make sure that those who were in that condition were also stabbed. But when the verse before says that they should be tested, that testing means it's in the passive tense. Now, what that means is, is that it could be attributed the way it's built to either God has made that test to them or Satan. We believe that it's because of the evil doing that Satan is behind that testing. But the passive also points to God as being the one who created that testing for those individuals in Smyrna. You see, both of them are correct. Because it is a Satan's job to tempt you to renounce your faith, and it is God's job to test your faith to make sure that you survive trial by fire. See, working faith cannot be exercised unless it is tested. And you can't exercise faith unless you act on it. This morning, another question I have for you is this. Are you acting out your faith? Are you taking that step forward, allowing God to work through you in that faith? And lastly, I want to talk about this text here on the screen. He who has an ear, let him hear to the spirit of the sisters of the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Do you think being burned alive hurt? I mean, it's a, it's a rhetorical question, all right? Do you think being called every name in the book by, some, by your brothers and sisters hurt? Do you think that being ostracized, persecuted, and the sufferings and, and the challenges that came along with being a Christian at that time hurt? He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. When you look at, at, at texts like Revelation 19, 20, 20, 10, and 20, 14, and 15, it all talks about the lake of fire. Right? It all talks about the lake of fire. All the, those three texts all have to do, four, I should say, deal with the lake, lake of fire, the everlasting death. That is when death will be thrown into the lake of fire and will be no more. 
So the question I was, I was playing in my mind earlier was, is death going to hurt? Is the death of death going to hurt? No. But the death of being persecuted will. And sometimes when we are going through that persecution, it hurts. And let me use a word that is very, very popular, but not very nice. It sucks to go through that. We have a very multicultural church. Some of you have been hurt by racial discrimination. Some of you have been discriminated because you may speak with an accent. Some of you may, may have been hurt because you were called something that you were not. Some of you may have been hurt because you were left out. You were the last person to be picked at recess. Some of you may have been hurt because you fill in the blank. And so we avoid, we tell ourselves, we condition ourselves that this isn't worth it. When you hurt for God now, you will not hurt later. Because it's to him, he's, they're promised a crown of life. A crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, but as I will give him a crown of life. This crown is not the crown that you would get is not the crown that you would get by being a prince it's a crown of victory and if you ever seen the old racing car races they would put these crowns of foliage onto the heads of those individuals or the early marathonists they would receive a crown that would depict that they had conquered they had won something But the word here is n not diadem, which is where we, we talk about a literal royalty crown, but it's a crown of victory. A crown of victory that you will wear when Jesus comes back. A crown of victory because you have endured, you have sustained the pressures, you have gone through the challenges, you have persevered through the stress, you have gone through the tribulation, but now you are victorious. That is the crown that is promised to those who overcome. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. I don't know what, what stresses and troubles you are, you are under. But I want to close you off with the words found in the book of Joshua. Says, fear not, and be of good courage. For I, the Lord your God, I am with you. And Jesus later says, fear not, for I will be with you even until the end of this age. I am with you. 
whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you are experiencing, it is not worth sacrificing your crown of victory for. It is not. Because it is the one who was alive, who was dead and now alive. He's the one who's personally guaranteeing this for you. Some of you have received an invitation. Some of you have received an invitation to surrender. But what's holding you back? Some of you have received an invite to give yourself to God by publicly being baptized. What's holding you back? What are you fearful for? Are you fearful because you are going to be different? <laughs> that you may be ostracized? That you may find yourself under persecution because you do not now do as the Romans do. This morning, I have a, a special invite. I know that there are some who have requested baptism. So it's going to be a twofold appeal. If you are here this morning and have requested baptism, I'd like for you to come forward. I know there's more you don't need to fear you're not going to get persecuted not in here Amen. these two will become baptized I can guarantee you that soon right but there are some of you who would like to get baptized and haven't even expressed that desire yet is there somebody I know that the spirit is knocking at your heart and you're fighting and you've been fighting for a long time Don't fight them. Don't fight the Spirit. If you are that individual who have been toying with the idea, maybe I should get baptized. This is for you. You have absolutely nothing to fear. because there's a crown of victory waiting for you. Amen. Is there somebody else tonight, this morning, now afternoon, that would like to say, Lord, I want to be a part of those who want to get baptized. I want to start a new life. I want to have this opportunity to rededicate myself to you. 
And you say, well, Pastor, I don't want to go up front. It's embarrassing. Are you embarrassed? A little bit? Not embarrassed. Do you feel like there's a stress that was here that's kind of lifted? If you have that stress on you, until you surrender, you are going to carry that. I promise you. Not because I desire ill sentiments towards you, but that's something that God, only God can take away. So this morning, I'm proud of you, Jude. Glenn, we're accepting that role that God has has in store for you. And so I want to pray with both of you. And if there's anybody else who's considering the idea of getting ready to become baptized, I invite you to come and talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But you have a burden that only God can lift. And that burden can only be lifted through surrender. Pray with me. Father God, I want to lift up these two gentlemen who have publicly accepted the call to serve you who have embraced the idea that only you can relieve the stress and the burden of not knowing what's in store for them. But Lord, you have promised that you be with us. And so I pray that you continue to bring peace and that, can, that only you can provide peace for both Glenn and for Jude, and for this young man who has come up here. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for how you have blessed us. And we ask that you continue to be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.